I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to episode two, series two, of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a colleague in their creative space about their journey and their creative process, how they make what they make. And my guest today is a man who's been making things and in doing so, mapping our social and cultural landscape for the best part of 40 years. Paul Kelly's first single, Recognition, hit the streets in 1979. And since then, he's gone on to release 27 studio albums, several live recordings and compilations, published a couple of books, including the best-selling sort of A to Z song history slash autobiography, How to Make Gravy, scored films like the hauntingly beautiful, and I want to call it a masterpiece, but I'll just say fabulous, Ray Lawrence film Jindabyne, and has himself appeared in a number of stage plays and films. I spoke with Paul in the music room at the back of his house, the place he turns up to most days he's home to see if something happens. Sitting across a table beside an old upright piano with a view to the backyard shed, I recalled a quote from I think it was Leonard Cohen who said that songwriting wasn't a science that could be taught but was rather a skill that had to be learned. And I asked Paul if that was his experience and this was his response. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Kelly. That is my experience. Um, people often, people often call you know songwriting a craft, but I, I'm, I don't I'm reluctant to call it that um, either because uh, with a craft, um, you you say say you're someone who makes a pair of shoes. You know, you can um, you go to work at the start of the day. You've got your pattern of your shoe. You've got your materials. You know what to do. You follow step A, B, C, D. And at the end of the day, if you if you know your craft, you've got a pair of shoes. Hmm. But um, songwriting is not like that. And I guess you could say more broadly, art's not not like that. Um, but it um, you do have to turn up. So. Um, we're, you know, we're sitting here in a room with my guitar and, and my piano and this is a room that I have to turn up to um, and um, sometimes, most of the time, uh, I don't, don't get a song or even a, a bit of a song. Um, most of the time, most of the time I just bore myself. <laughs> <laughs> Songwriting, you know, what's that old saying about war? Long periods of boredom punctuated by terror. Yeah. Songwriting's long periods of boredom punctuated by occasional surprise. The surprise is when you something, you know, you get something. So. And that something can be quite small, can't it? Can it can be a hook or a chord or a, a a word or a phrase? Is that the most difficult thing, kind of finding the beginning? There are beginnings everywhere. So you hear. You hear something, or you, th- you hear a, a phrase, or you read something, or you have a, some lines in your head, a, a line or two, and you think that'd be good in a song. So you, they sort of come, you know, as they come, uh, often enough. I think the harder part is actually the hardest part for me is finishing a song. Getting started on a song is sort of is easy um, for me. I mean, I think you know. Every song is different, but it, I can get melodies pretty easily. So if I sit down 
and just muck around like sort of like for an, um, an uh, a visual artist would doodle or you know start doing moving images around or uh, you know work, working with clay or whatever yeah Hannah Hannah works with uh, like collage a lot of the time yeah. it sort of moves bits of things around the page yeah. getting getting those kind of things I get uh, melodies a lot um, and then you know in the old days I used to put, put them sing them into a little a little tape recorder where you just have to press play and record at the same time um, and uh, I now do that on the phone I've never been uh, someone who's very good with any kind of machinery so I need the most basic yeah, simple same. equipment just all right I've got an idea and I've I learned um, you know through thinking oh I remember that I have a melody or a line I remember that um, and then of course you don't so I am <laughs> in the habit of if I get if I think of a line I'll go I'll write it it's all on the phone now I'll write it in my phone did you used to carry a notebook everywhere yeah, a little notebook yeah, yeah. A little notebook. so I know for example uh, dumb things that was, you were in a pub, I think, and some guy at the bar said, I yeah. remember you saying this. Yeah, someone, 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 the, someone I didn't know just behind me talking to a friend saying, yeah, I've done all the dumb things. Yeah. And I thought, so I did have a little piece of paper. And I thought, did it really, when you heard it, did you, did that, did that phrase kind of really light up in you? Did you really think, oh shit, there's a song in that? Uh, I, I don't remember, uh, I don't remember, because, Sometimes you think, oh, I better write that down. It might, that might be useful. It's not yeah. like, wow, this is going to be great. Um, yeah. And I can't remember if I've done all the dumb things. I just know that someone else said it. Yeah. I wrote it down. I don't know if I sort of jump on it straight away or whether. The, the, I mean, the other process of, of, of writing is just going back through or going back through the recordings, listening to them until and and um, until something jumps out and maybe sets me off on a song, or going through. The notebooks or things on the phone, looking through them, and and it's pretty haphazard. So sometimes it, it's just sometimes the the line you've written down there will suddenly think, oh, that fits with that little melody I have here. But unless I keep going back and scrolling through those things, I just jot it down. Yeah. That, that will never happen. So a lot of the time, it's just sort of um, you know going back listen to recordings because I, 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 I would say I might sit at the piano and I'd start playing and a little melody would come to me and then I'd just, just record it and so I've got lots and lots of them just as I have lots and lots of cassettes from years you know yeah. from when I used to put them on cassette yeah. so this is but, the archive <laughs> so yeah but it's, it's just like me sort of with melodies it's just me sort of singing and singing and making noises yeah. making sounds and sometimes trying to get words to fit the sounds is that's when it's sort of more successful when the words fit the sounds. What about the sounds? Like uh, I know you've got a pretty wide, wide musical uh, sort of palette that you draw from. Are there melodies that that you hear that you go, oh, I could shift that? I think it, wasn't it Woody Guthrie who said, you know, just get a song, change a couple of notes, and you'll be right. Or Woody Guthrie said that, and also Buck Owens, the great country singer, you know. Very, uh, said something very similar. Said, "I just what did he say? Because he was a very smart businessman and he ran radio stations and owned his own publishing and all that. He just said, I just, you know, change the change the tune, change it, uh, 
I changed a few notes in the tune and I sold it to them over and over again. <laughs> slightly more cynically than Woody, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's not, um, it's not that conscious. So yeah, but I get melodies from just others. Um, I mean, I, li I listen widely to a lot of different things. So, um, and then I think it's also I think it's important to try and figure out songs that you like. So that's sort of a way of. I guess imbibing mm. songs, and then and so you sort of. Um, it's amazing what you learn when you learn someone else's song, even what you think is a simple one. In, in the deconstruction of it and seeing how it works. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've always done. I mean, I obviously, I probably did it a lot more when I was younger, when I because that was all I was learning how to play songs, and I, I learned a lot of other people's songs before I started writing my own. But it's sort of part of um, just what I do. Especially, I've been doing it a lot more during this last couple of months of lockdown. Is actually, yeah. I went back to oh, I'm going to go back and learn, relearn. We went back to some old songs that I used used to know and forgotten. You know, way back to Jimmy Rogers or Hank Williams and some some of the old songs, Johnny Cash. Um, but uh, so I've been doing that, and then but also for, you know, hear new songs and you know. Um, or current songs and think, oh, that sounds good, and try to, you know, uh, work out the chords and have a little. You, you can sort of hear a song and, and love it and know it and think you know it until you start to work it out, um, and then you sort of you find these little intricacies in the structure. Yeah, I remember watching a, an interview with you and uh, Neil Finn actually, where he uh, said that your interpretation of one of his songs taught him something about the song that he didn't know. Do you find that with your own music? Do you actually find that when you when you look at some of your songs, you kind of go, I never really quite got that. I never really understood that about that song that I wrote myself. Uh, yeah, they, 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 yes. I mean, some songs fall away and other ones sort of become, they become more charged as you, or they have, they, yeah, they, they suddenly, um, seem to be more relevant, or they, or such something about them. You, yeah, then you make a discovery about them that um, that, that you weren't really aware of. Um, and, and quite a few, and there's some that think, well, I, I've got no idea how I wrote that, or how did that? Because um, it's a bit like sort of being in the middle of a, a dream when you when when. When you, it's a lyric of yours. What's that? In the middle of a dream. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was interesting. You brought up Neil because that's uh, that was really interesting to working with him and working at his songs because yeah, you hear those beautiful songs of his and they sound like they just come out of they they, they sound effortless. They don't sound like they were have been worked in any way. They sound like they just came well, in some cases straight from heaven, and then. Um, there, he had a lot more twists and turns and little irregularities in his songs, more than I do. I'm, I'm probably a bit more traditional in, you know, in a folk structure, of, you know, verse or, or, or you know, v verse one and two are the, sort of the same structure. Then there's a chorus and there's a little, there's a bridge. So I'm probably a bit more um, traditional in, in that way. That's where's, I mean, Neil was obviously pop classicist so he's got all those sort of pop 
things about him too, but there's all these little, tiny little, his second verse might be slightly different to the first, and then there's a little bit here, then there's... So that, that was sort of, it was like digging into this sort of mechanism of a, a clock, I think, working on his songs. Um, and the, the, the revelation being, well, these songs sound like effortless, but they, they've obviously, um, they weren't. <laughs> Making is, them wasn't. Yeah, is that, the, is that the sign of a good song, do you think, that you kind of like, it, it, it makes sense? It's interesting that you mentioned Johnny Cash and um, Hank Williams, because, you know, your songs, by, well, by and large, I guess, they're stories, and those guys are storytellers. Because if you take something like uh, Make and Gravy, which is such a great song, and I actually listened to it last night, and I listened to it last night with different ears, it's universal because it's about Christmas and about the gathering, but it's but it has such specificity in it. You know, it's about a guy in jail writing about, well, you know what the song's yeah. about. I'm not going to tell you what the song's about, but there's such detail in there, but they're all kind of things that we can all relate to. So it has the personal and the universal, and I find that fascinating about so many of your songs. Is that just a, a happy accident, or does it come from...? I think it's, it's definitely... There's songwriters that I love that... that do that and that's probably I'm drawn to those songwriters so you know going back to Chuck Berry who's very I mean I'm probably drawn to visual songwriters so you know Chuck Berry you can see everything in his songs and yeah. hamburgers on the open grill and, you know um, coffee colour Cadillac and you know um, really um, they're very visual songs and I think Lou and you know for, you know Lou Reed was was really and the Velvet Underground, they were really visual songs and they mapped a certain certain terrain. Um, you know, Chuck ma mapped all of America. Lou Reed ma mapped Matthew. sort of certain small section of New York, but they're uh, Ray Davies and the Kinks, they were yeah. Waterloo Sunset, one of the greatest songs ever written. That's yeah. people swarming like flies around Velvet, you know, yeah. Waterloo Underground. So I'm drawn to that, those kind of visual songwriters. Mm -hmm. So that's um so that's probably where like it's cinematic that's where the story you know telling it's not not every song of mine's a real narrative storytelling song but some quite a few are but i guess it, it often starts with a a visual detail from little things big things grow started with a you know um golf whitland pouring that famous photo of golf yeah by um oh, i should remember his name merv Merv Bishop? Anyway. Uh, you're you're yeah. doing better than me. Merv Bishop, yeah. I just remember the photo. <laughs> but the photo, so that was, that's where that song begins with that. So it's an, often it's an image that, that starts it for me. So, but they're not, they're not really, um, they're not really, uh, it's not really that conscious about, uh, I don't know, I often don't know what the story is. You know, if I'm telling a story, I don't know. What, what it is until I'm in the middle of it, usually. Mm. It's interesting that you mention um, from little things, big things grow, because collaboration's been a big part, particularly in the in the last, I would say, what, 20 years? Yeah, I guess, I've, I mean, uh, you're right, it's, it's probably in, it's increased more, in, say, over the last 10, 10 or 15 years, and, uh, I've always, but I've always been pretty open to collaboration um, because I'm... Uh, because I'm a fairly basic musician, I think, so when I work with my band, it's very collaborative. I don't come in with a song and say, this is this is the guitar, if this is what the drums should be doing, this is the bass line. 
this is how it goes. I, I come in with a very, like a blueprint, I guess, and then we all, you know, hash it out, play it back and forth, try out things. So that's uh, playing with my band, recording with all my bands, all the different bands over the years has been like that. Um, so And then I guess being, and also being open to working with other people. So, you know, when I first started, um, coming up in the late in the late eighties and nineties, you know, and you know, signing a deal with a publisher. There was a real they still do it. They love publishers like to put what, you know, oh, this songwriter with that songwriter and I'll write a song. So and when I was first going to America I I often I would do a few sessions where I'd you know, just meet a stranger and sit down in a room and try and write a song. And the, so there's some some did, of them, did that some, work? I mean some worked and some didn't. Yeah. And it's and it's uh, I'm not, so I'm pretty open, I'm not that precious about, um, I'm not too precious about how, you know, I'm happy to sort of try and throw an idea into a collaboration and see what happens. I think, the, you know, if you go in there with the attitude of it's a form, which songwriting is, it's all, all art really, it's a form, form of play. So mm. if I guess what become the, de- the deadening hand comes when you think, I have to walk out at the end of the day, I have to walk out of this room with this stranger, we have to have a song finished. So sometimes you walk out of there and you finish something, but it's sort of, it's a bit, a bit cobbled together. So, you know, writing with Kev was, um, that, that one, you know, just happened pretty quickly and we didn't finish it on the spot, but we finished it later. Kev and I, you know, we spent a lot of time together over the years and we sat down and mucked around tried and try to get a song going sometimes mm. sometimes we've you know we've written others other songs another one's just sort of hit 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 a dead end you know the, the, um he you know one of us might sort of think it should go that way and he's feeling it that way and it, we sort of it stops but um so even with sort of successful collaborators you have your hit i guess your misfires and your mm. hits and misses as you do in, as an individual yeah yeah do you have a kind of like a a, a wardrobe full of half-started songs that just never got there. Oh, yeah, that's mostly, yeah, probably more than, if I put them, stacked up all the old cassettes, it'd be more than that. Uh, you know, uh, of all, you know, a song, getting a, a song is sort of, I'd say less than, way less than 1% of, of, of uh, the, you know, ideas or sketches or musical ideas or scraps of lines, you know, it's a, only a little bit that becomes a song, but um, yeah, you talked about collaboration. I mean, that's that's something that you're, that's that's very much part of your work, isn't it? Oh, I can't do it without it. <laughs> so you know, I mean, theatre is a is absolutely a team sport, and if you go into that um, trying to control every aspect of it, you're going to end up with a bit of a mess, really. I mean, listening is so much a part of. Of, of what we do. That's a, you know, well, Karen Fairfax, you, um, who I, I was married to, and you, you know her. Karen, well Karen, well. Karen directed me in a play, actually. Yeah, I know. Mm. She, when I had my first, you know, acting role in, um, no, it was before One Night the Moon, it was when we were doing Funerals and Circuses, a theatre piece in, the, in 91. Mm. And it's the first time I'd ever sort of been involved in theatre. Mm. And she, she gave me the best piece of advice. She said, Listen to the other actors. Listen, just yeah. And don't act like you're listening. Yeah. Actually, listen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just listen, listen. Um, 
my first introduction to acting was with Steve Grayson and, and she was also assistant director with the Magpie Theatre but, but he did a lot of um, and we was, it was a group device piece so there was a lot of um, improvisations that were uh, very similar to um, teen sports what's it called theatre sports theatre sports so, mm. so that was actually a really great way in for me because it was all about you just we weren't actually never script at that stage but we were just um, I guess acting pushing role, around in acting that. role and you know, so the, he would um, so give us those you know all this stuff the high status low status thing and yeah. all these different situation scenarios you would put in and then you just have to uh, you know, go with it. Listen to what the other person does and respond. And so, um, I actually found that a lot of fun. Someone like me is jealous of you because you can do what you do on your own. Um, yeah, whereas, you know, I can't stand on a street corner reciting Shakespeare. <laughs> I'd look like a bit of a fool, really. Yeah. But the interesting thing about your songs too, I think, is that you know they they're very open ended, aren't they? I mean, you, they can be performed solo. But they can get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and and also bigger voices can take your songs on and and really. When you write, do you do you write for you or do you write for? Uh, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, I generally just so, most of the time just writing a song and then saying, oh, uh, the song starts to happen and start chasing it down. And as as you're doing that, you're thinking this would be a good band song, or this could be a good song for so and so. I mean, the two. Two or three people I've written for the most with with keeping it, you know, with their voices in mind has been Renee Gaia. Yeah. I've actually written songs specifically, you know, straight off the bat, this is for Renee and the other and Vigor and Linda and you know, some, some co writes with them as well. So uh, and I but sometimes I write a, um, there's some songs I write and they're just like they sort of they'll fall out and it's like, uh, um uh, and they're, they're, they're songs, obviously, for me to do. They're mm. sort of, because they're sort of half-spoken, you know, half-talk, half-something, like gravy. So yeah. so I'm probably the best person to do them. Mm. Other songs I write where I'm sort of reaching for a thing and, I'm, uh, and I'm, I write the song, but straight away I know I think it'd be better sung by someone else. So that's, that's when I've... So even though I haven't written a song with a particular person in mind, by the time I finish a song, I think, ah, oh, that needs a real, you know, that needs a prop, pro what, what I would call like a, a proper singer. <laughs> and, I'm not, and that's not, not, that's not, you know, being falsely modest, because I know, I know some, a lot of songs I write, I'm probably the best person to sing it, sing them. And mm. um, my, my singing's, my singing's good for what I write. But sometimes I'll write songs that I think that needs more of a, you know, like more of a soul voice or, or someone who can really, um, someone with a, a, a more beautiful voice. I mean, I don't have a beautiful voice, but I write songs sometimes that I think, oh, I want to have a beautiful voice sing that. So this is a great way to get into the break then. Uh, is there one of, is there a version of one of your songs that you kind of go, man, that's just how I kind of wanted the song to sound? Well, I, should, I have to answer that question in two parts because if I was, I was going to say my favourite, you know, cover of mine was is was Renee Gay doing Foggy Highway, which was the first time she ever sang it, some of mine. But I hadn't imagined her singing it. It was producer Martin Armiger who who died last year, who who 
had the idea to get, we were both working on this TV series, music for a TV series, and he got her to sing this song of mine, which I wasn't too sure about. Um, I'd written it, but I, it was, and I'd sung it, but I couldn't, I couldn't, it was one of those songs where I think, I can't, this would be, I think this song's good, but it doesn't sound any good when I sing it. Right. And then, and then he took it to Renee, and Renee said, uh, Renee said, that's not, you know, I can, that's not my kind of song, Paul Kelly, you know, folk music. <laughs> and, uh, I can and hear so, Renee saying so that too. Oh, yeah. So he sort of coaxed her into it and then she sang it. And like, and it sort of, I remember, I still remember the first time I heard the recording, the hairs went up on the back of my neck. So that's the, you know, I would uh, name that as my, as, as my favourite recording. I think also because of the history of it and the, the circumstances, how it came about. The other, the other one I really like is is Hard Love by Vicar and Linda. And that was one more that I thought, this has got to go to them. You know, I thought Vicar. So um, uh, I'd written it and I was singing it myself for a while, but I thought it needs, it needs, it's got to go to a better song for a woman. And, 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 and I think I know the right woman to sing this one. So Vicar it was, and you know, Linda sings with it. That is the remarkable Bull Sisters, Vicar and Linda, with Paul Kelly's Hard Love. You're listening to, and I'm going to call it, episode 10 of Making Art, with me, Neil Pickett. The current pandemic has created quite a deal of uncertainty and hardship throughout the creative community. In last episode, I spoke with the President of the Victorian Actors Benevolent Trust, Sally Ann Upton, about the situation facing arts workers in the state of Victoria. Another organisation that's working to offer financial support and with that a little dignity to performers along with other members of the creative team is the New South Wales Benevolent Fund. Their Vice President is the actor Glenn Hazeldean and we had a bit of a chat about the problem not so much of getting money for the fund but as Sal Upton said of encouraging a community that's used to giving to accept a little giving in return. Here's Glenn. I can say, I mean, I, I do um, stay in touch quite regularly with the other states, just be, we have a very collegiate uh, relationship, even though we're not necessarily connected in the in the direct work that we do. And I know that um, all the funds around the country have worked really hard, not anticipating um, a, a crisis of this scale, but just to prepare ourselves um, to, to meet the needs of uh, a community that, that we know often fall through the cracks. So we in New South Wales are in a really, really strong financial position and a lot of money, in fact, has come our way in the last six months as a result of what's happened uh, with this virus. So we've got plenty of money in the bank. The difficult part for us is to get the message out to people that they can stop thinking about the fund as something they're supposed to raise money for and start leaning into it because they're falling uh, quite heavily. So that's that's the tricky part is to... Is to, to uh, to get the message across that it's okay, A, to ask for help, don't be so proud, and B, the funds are in a really good position and it's not going to send them broke if people come to us for um, for the necessary help. 
And, and you're helping people that aren't just performers as well, aren't you? You're helping uh, technicians, all those sorts of people. And, and and I guess a lot of them aren't aware of the trust either. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, we, we, we met this, you know, tried to address this a few months ago by we produced a, an online campaign that we roll out every few weeks Uh to send the message that a the fund has the money to help, b don't be so proud. It's 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 okay. It's your privilege, in fact, to um, to reach out to this fund. It's why we've all worked so hard for all these years to build them up um, into to such a financial financially secure place, uh, and c that the fund, despite the name Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales or Victorian Actors Benevolent Trust, that they're industry wide funds. They're 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 there for technicians and stage managers and directors, writers, dancers. Um, at the moment, um, through the COVID-19 crisis, we're helping people who have worked in front of house and, um, uh, you know, child minders, uh, you know, backstage child minders, chaperones, um, you know, uh, even agents in New South Wales can come to us for some relief. Because agents, we, we don't think of them. They're, they're doing it pretty tough, aren't they? Well, I, you know, I mean, my agent's not making a cracker out of me, so that's... that's... <laughs> Not Mine's Jim. not making a cracker out of me either. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, they're such an integral part of the industry and we often take that for granted. And, and we, we made the decision in New South Wales that we would extend the, the hand, uh, a collegiate handout to casting agents as well as um, our, you know, actors, agents, designers, agents, creatives, agents, yeah. That was Glenn Hazeldean of the New South Wales Benevolent Fund. If you'd like to help support the trust or fund in your state... You can find out how to do that on the website www.makingart.com.au And if you know someone in the business that needs help, encourage them to get in touch, just as I did. It's anonymous, and as Glenn said, while this pandemic wasn't ever on anyone's radar, to be of support in times like this is precisely why these funds have been so lovingly nurtured over the years, so get in touch. Now it's back to my conversation with Paul Kelly. On the top of the piano was a copy of Bob Dylan's new CD, which incidentally gets a big thumbs up from both Mr Kelly and myself, and I asked if Dylan had been an influence. Here again is Paul Kelly. Oh, a big, big influence. I, I sort of, I learned to play guitar off the first Bob Dylan record, I guess. So, um, did you have older brothers and sisters? No, I was the eldest, but... I, uh, yeah, so I was the music player, really. I yeah. had a record player. So yeah, my 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 um, influences came down from my. I've got four above me. So, yeah. um, so first of all, it's all Peter Paul and Mary and those records coming into the house, and Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Normie Rowe, 60, 64, 65 hearing Bob Dylan, and again that came through the through the older brothers and sisters, and then blonde, you know. Highway 61 revisited, blonde on blonde. Um, but I, I was only um, 11 or 12. But there's that story, again, it's that storytelling uh, vibe, isn't it? It's... Yeah. And then when I, I, started, I started learning to play guitar when I was 18, and then I, I sort of figured out a lot of the songs off the first two records. Um, Bob Dylan, which is just him doing mainly covers, said mm. there's one song he wrote himself to Woody Guthrie, song for Woody, and Freewheeling Bob Dylan, which is all his songs, mm. and they're all they're you know, um, you can work out how to play them. And I've learned how. One of the first songs I learned was um, "Girl from the North Country." So 
Did you, you know, I read somewhere that the first time you actually publicly performed was in a, was busking in Hobart. Is that true? It, it was in Hobart, not busking. Not busking, but an was, open mic or something. Yeah, open mic, not at Salamanca Folk What were you London. doing in Hobart? <laughs> Um, How did you get there? Yeah, seventy four. I was so I'd, I left school in nineteen seventy one, and um, was tra- just travelling around. And I went. Uh, I ended up. Why did we go to Tassie? I can't even remember now. I remember catching the ferry across. Uh, yeah, I went with a friend, and then yeah, so we were just sort of having an, on an adventure. We caught the ferry across, and then ended up in Hobart. Got a job, and then. I was just starting, you know, to play, because um, I'd only been playing guitar not that long, yeah. less than a year, and I could play "Girl from the North," uh, "Girl from the North Country," and um, "Streets of Falls," Australian folk song about Ben Hall, "Come All You Lachlan Men," and um, so I played them at that open mic night, yeah, and that was. Um, uh, and you got you yeah. got through it, and did that. That first time you perform, it's like you do, you just get through it, don't you? Mm. I mean, you just kind of go, oh, God, I've got to through that, yeah. I survived. Yeah, drank way too much afterwards. Probably a bit too much before and then a bit too much afterwards. Um, my friend put me to bed, took me home, put me to bed. Did that, did that experience kind of light up something in you? Did you just kind of go, oh, I could do this? Or did it sort of slowly come over a period of time? Um, it, it it didn't kick in I sort of but it didn't kick in for a while actually I think I might have got a little I don't think it didn't really kick on I didn't do much after that I remember the rest of the time in Tasmania I, I went up and uh, worked at Savage River on an iron ore mine um, I remember I, had, I still had a good time with me and so I was just still playing you know learning other people's songs and then um, and then back in Adelaide for a while and, and then I um, I got a bit, I remember being sort of daunted to go, oh well I can't I, you know I can't I can never be that I can't I'm not really good at this what doing other people's songs uh, yeah I guess I, there was a period where I just sort of didn't really pursue it and I was but I was also wanting to be a writer so I was writing you know sort of Prose poetry, I guess you call it, mm. um, influenced by um, Baudelaire's a book, book, book by Baudelaire called Paris Spleen. I mean, it, where he writes it's prose, po- short prose pieces, but very poetic. So that was that was my thing for a while. Carlo Gibran, the the prophet, sort of. So I was, I thought, well, I might want to be a writer, but I hadn't, I hadn't actually, and I've been sort of learning guitar and learning other songs wanted to be a writer but I hadn't put the you hadn't put the two, two together. together and then I remember in 1976 I was back in Adelaide living in North Adelaide and I I wrote a song and then I thought oh so I can write one I can write another one so and then that's so then I got I thought well I'll, I'll keep going at, at this but it was funny that the, it was two years it was two years after I played it um Salamanca Folk Club and I hadn't really done much in between so I'm, I'm, I think I sort of took a step back and thought do I really want to do this or not that's the performance side yeah. of things yeah when you started writing songs did it come in a rush or was it a slow build or 
they've never come in a rush, you know. Songs have never come in a rush for me, so but they were they were um they came, you know, but they They came when they wanted to. They, you know, you know, I tried, but you know, yeah. it's like I said, even back then, I mean it, it hasn't really changed much since when I first started writing song. Most of the time I'm hating myself or <laughs> just like oh, boring. <laughs> so it's it really hasn't changed that much, it's really but but you've got to keep fishing, don't you? you got to, it's like, yeah, you've got to go, got to go fishing. You've got to dangle the line. Dangle the line and you go four or five times. You go, you, turn, you go fishing four or five times and maybe you get a bite on the fifth day or the fifth time. So it's the same thing. I have learned that you've got to, um, that you've just, you've got to keep, uh, staying on the tools is the best way I can yeah. describe it. And, you know, so, and I, I will, I know I might not have written a song for a long time, but, you know, because I might have been, you know, playing guitar much. I'm, I'm say for, I don't really, when I'm busy with recording or touring or all the other work that goes with with, with that, um, you know, putting out records and all the, all the work you do around that, I, I don't really write much. So, and then, so months and months will go by and I haven't written a song and then I'm sort of feeling pretty antsy because I haven't written anything. So I'm just going to go back, and and, and often the way back is said early on, just turn up and turn up, and often the way back is just to go back and start playing other people's songs or learn a song or yeah, just um, yeah, just play, um, and and if you, most of the time something will eventually come. I also find when I've got periods of rehearsing with the band that some ideas will start to generated as well so it's really it's you've just got to um, um, keep at it for you can't wait around for think it doesn't just come you can't you can't wait around for a, a song to come you've actually got to actually set up the conditions that that'll happen I know you read a lot of poetry you published a book of poetry didn't you your favorite poems yeah, uh, yeah uh, last year yeah. last year was it yeah um, uh, you read widely you listen widely you read widely one of your songs, you were—I remember you—you you were going through a period of re- reading Raymond Chandler novels, Raymond Carver, Raymond Carver short stories. Do you find that you know reading widely uh, is is important as a kind of a a, a, a tool? Yeah, I, I've always read pretty pretty widely, so that's um, oh uh, yeah, it's. Um, and sometimes, yeah, lines jump out, jump out at you from books, and I write, you know, I write them down. Or, um, but yeah, it's not not often that direct. But I read widely and read a lot of poetry, and um, and to me, it's part of my job. Mm. So I very happily lie in the bed in the middle of the day and read a book. You know, because it's your job. My job, and uh, my. By, um, but you know we laugh about that but that time to reflect and read and, and spend time with yourself is pretty important isn't it oh yeah you've got to have a lot of you've got to make, you've got to make do nothing time and yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of idleness and I think work's overrated I think we're in, you know the way that culture's developed over the last 50 years or more is that being busy is good you know, you've got to work hard, you've got to be busy, you've got to 
keep active. Um, and I think, you know, that all that's been sped up and accelerated with, with social media. So for people um, don't give themselves nothing time anymore as soon as they got some and I, I'm just as guilty as the next you you, uh, you, have, you know you you sort of um, it's very easy to get busy you go you know sitting you're waiting at, you're, you're waiting you're, you're doing nothing so you look at your phone um, or yes yeah, you've got to so I you have to con- I have to consciously carve out nothing time and, just, and then make sure and be perfectly happy doing nothing so I mean, reading, reading Yeah, but it's, it's doing nothing, but it's actually doing something in a creative sense, isn't it? Because you're actually, I don't know, it, it may not be an active uh, creativity, but you're giving yourself the space, internal space, in which something, something can come. Happen. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, you know, like on the other hand, I, I'm saying you've got to go to the piano with the guitar to play, and to, so you've got to work in that sense. But uh, it's a, and even when I'm sort of thinking I'm, I'm on the way, I'm sort of halfway into, maybe there's a song there, this is something, maybe there's a song. And then it's just, uh, a lot of the time, it's something that comes at you sideways. Mm-hmm. And you certainly, you just jump, you, off, you go off the track you're on and you've suddenly, you're really on it, onto a song. And that's it. That thing wouldn't have come at you sideways, I suspect, unless you've given your brain a rest <laughs> at some point. You'd actually just got to let, try and let the brain do nothing so uh, it, it's your subconscious can sort things out work in the morning but that gets in that maybe gets you nowhere then you've got to have some nothing time and then and then it'll sort itself out you know we talk is there, is, oh, go on. no you go is there an is there an, uh, an acting equivalent is it equivalent to that when you're trying to work out a a part to play um, working on a a character. I think you can get blindsided. You have to do a lot of research, don't you? Well, you you do research. It's generally in the text, but you can get blindsided sometimes because there's a kind of a crossover that takes place. It's that thing of just having the space sometimes uh, to allow it to be what it is, yeah. or allow it to come to you without you trying to push. Have you ever um, hit hit the first night and you? Still don't have the character. What is that all like? Or you no, but I but often I imagine it's like this for you. I mean, what's it like when you play a song for the first time? Um, so it's usually um, well, it's it's usually well, it's always a bit it's so exciting. It's it's I mean, you mean to an audience because by the yeah, time to, to an, an audience. audience, it's sort of it's, I've played it a lot at home or. But and, or played it with the band. I mean, I can always tell. This, you can usually tell which songs are better than others, and um, just sort of by, if you want to take it to the band, you can tell. You know, some the band, some songs are playing to the band, and the band just picks it up. Bang! It, it, it's right. You can tell by the everyone's energy and body language that they really like it. And other ones, they, sort of just, they all stare at you and go, "What are you thinking?" <laughs> uh, I can re- remember once. Uh, wrote uh, it's on a record called Spring and Fall a song called um, I Just Want to Sleep with Someone New and, uh, and the, the band was five guys you know, uh, including my nephew Dan and uh, I took it to, I played it to the band and this is like here's a new song 
And also everyone's just sitting sitting around at their instruments and listening to the song. I played the song. And then five grown men just all looked at me. <laughs> all looked at their shoes. <laughs> and no one said a word. <laughs> so I just quietly put that <laughs> I packed I packed that song away and I didn't attempt that again till about four or five years later. But when you um sorry to get back to making gravy, but I think it you first played it in your back shed here. Mm. How was that? Because that was was it was that for a Christmas gig? It was for a Christmas charity record. It was um, run by Lindsay Fields, who's still doing it. It's called The Spirit of Christmas, and he's a musician, lovely lovely guy. He plays John Farnham. Or we played as John Farnham's guitar player and singer. And um, I think it was the Salvation Army at then, or the. Yeah, the charity's changed. I can't remember what it is right now. But it was for a, cha- a charity record. And and uh, and he'd asked me to do a song for it. And this, I'd chosen a song that was already taken. So then he said, well, why don't you try and write one yourself? Christmas song yourself. And then I did. Um, but that was a good example of not really knowing what it, if the song was still being... So it was that, it was that you know, still had that still wet the paint was still wet on that song when I played it and how did that to feel Lindsay, he came around how he started it? crying oh did he he started crying while I was playing it so then I thought I think I've got one here uh. you know so um, it does take sometimes yeah, some songs I get excited by straight away I think this is a good one you know I've yeah. got a good one here and other times I think well, I don't know is it any good I don't know and I play it and I think it's good and I like it you know uh, nine o'clock at night, and the next day I pick it up and play it again. I said, "Oh, it's not that good." And then, then I come back to it. It's not bad. So uh, yeah, then, then, well, then I might, and then I'll take it to the band, say, and then the, the, suddenly the band make it work, or they their enthusiasm. So, and suddenly you get that validation, mm. and then you're off. So I think gravy. I didn't. It was. It was a funny. It's an unusual song. It's not. It doesn't. You know. It doesn't have a chorus. It's. It's a sort of. Um, and it, it. I didn't know. And when I played it to him, I hadn't. Still hadn't gone to the band yet. So. Mm. So that was really. Raw. And then the band. The, it was yeah. But it it worked obviously because he I could see the song working. So that sort of, that was just sort of flick the switch. So, I've got a song. And then, um, and then the band. The other thing that happened with that song is that the you know the band that this or the it's just the way it was written that it had this sort of gear change in it or it sort of kicks up and the band took that. So um, it's a good song to play live because there's this natural uh, lift occurs. Are there songs that surprise you that are that you? that you're still playing and still get the kind of reaction that you get from them, that when you actually wrote them, you thought, oh, this is an all right sort of a song. Well, I guess the question I'm asking is, do you know that it's going to, it's going to work and it's really going to catch on or do you, is it just all kind of... Generally don't. Generally don't know. I, I, I never felt that I was a particularly good judge of that. But uh, what's a good example? Before Too Long was a song that was really a hard one to get down. Uh, and and I never thought because it's a it's got lots of chord changes so it's it's a little bit to me it felt a bit like it's a clunky song um, and we so we worked hard on it recording it and 
just and then um, and uh, didn't know and, and so didn't know had this sort of feeling about the song well, I don't know if this is any good or not and then that became uh, that was one of our first songs on the radio and that, so had no, had no idea that that was going to be a you know a single or a popular song what was it like to actually have that first popular song oh very exciting remember, yeah. remember here, you know we, hearing was, yourself on the radio yeah it's really sort of hearing it sort of coming back at you because of course you know that you've played the song a lot you know it and you sing it but to actually hear it without you playing it it's, that was I can still remember that sensation like you just think what we made and it's, that's us and it's coming back at us I mean, I know it's weird. It sounds very obvious, but pretty exciting. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Like, yeah, do, do you like listening to yourself? No. <laughs> I, don't, no. I don't like watching myself. I mean, <laughs> obviously, you're making a record, you listen, you play it, and you, of course you hear it back coming out of yourself because you've recorded it, and you're listening back up at the speakers, and you're mixing it, and sometimes that's a long process. So you have, actually have heard it coming back at yourself, but, you know, what we heard before too long driving from Melbourne to Sydney and on down the Hume. Um, and and it, just, it just came on. Came on the radio, and it's like we just jumped out of our seats. We just couldn't believe it. You know, you were with the band. Yeah, we, we were going with the band, and we heard a. You know, that must have been an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah. Where, with a you know, a slab of beer and a pack of cedar fed doing that. <laughs> <laughs> As we did in those Don't days. Don't try that at home, kids. No. No. Um, it hasn't all been beer and Skittles, has it? You know, I mean, there's been some difficult decisions that you've had to make, like actually quitting the band when you, uh, like there was the, what was it, the Messengers first and then the do- the Colour Girls and the Dots and then actually putting... The Colour Girl, the Colour Girls was the, and the Messengers of the same band, just changed the name. The Dots, dots were first. Yeah. Um, and, and then yeah, I did decide to disband. I mean, the Dots was a lot, you know, that was sort of, a lot of different lineups. Um, the Colour Girls Messengers was was uh, pretty stable. Yeah, but then after six years, we did. You know, we we made five records in that in five years. We we were we we were very productive, but I felt it was time to um, disband the band. So that was that was a tough one. Yeah, we were sort of we were going well, uh, um, but I, I thought well, we had the th- we had that thing that all great bands have of being you know uh, we were it was do we were defined by our limitations and I think that's a really important part of a style is if you if you're too good at everything you'll never get your own style but if you've got this sort of your 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 um, things that you you can't do or you don't like doing and the things that you know the, the band was you know a strong sort of opinionated band and uh, one of the reasons you know so, but, so that was what well, made the band great and greater than some of its parts but um, uh, I was into reggae and, and, and so you wanted to grow and you didn't feel yeah, you could no, grow you know, so, yeah, yeah so the band but, you know for Steve Cronley he was you know huge part of the band and um, defined our sound so uh, I, I learned so much from working with him but he you know he didn't he hated reggae he just thought reggae was too sort of sleepy mm-hmm. so 
and the, before I, you know, before I got that band together, I used to, I loved reggae, I played a lot of dumb music and listened to it a lot, and, mm. but it was never something I could take, I couldn't write, I didn't write those kind of songs, mm. not that I would write reggae songs anyway, but, but it, that, those kind of flavours could never be something that I, I would bring in there or something a bit, a bit funkier or, um, and wasn't that, wasn't sort of, wasn't what that band did. And, and so, I wanted to sort of try, try different things. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was probably a, a, a tough one, but uh, the friendships all remain. So yeah, it's just but you gotta sort of as long as you sort of straight up about it. Is there one song that you kind of go, God, I, that song? I wish I'd written that song. <laughs> I know that's a difficult question. That's a bit like saying, what's your favourite colour? Yeah, there's, there's so many, I think, yeah. But I'd say Waterloo Sunset could be up there. The, the lyrics are like, got that cinematic storytelling feeling. You could see that song. But, but, but to have that was such, um, uh, such a beautiful melody, beautiful parts to the song. That's, that's, that's right up there for me, that song. Thanks. That's the end. <laughs> what the sunset? That's the Davies Brothers, the original warring British pop band siblings and their great, great band, The Kinks, with Waterloo Sunset. And that, too, was episode 10 of Making Art. My thanks to Paul Kelly for allowing me into his creative space. My thanks also to Glenn Hazeldean of the New South Wales Benevolent Fund. If you'd like to make a donation to support entertainment industry professionals in New South Wales, please visit the website www.actorsbenevolentfund.org.au or you can do so on the Making Art website www.makingart.com.au where you'll also find some photos and links to a few songs, a macabre Baudelaire poem or two and of course our other nine episodes. And if you have time, please subscribe to the series and pass it on to a friend. Column for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Scott at Pixel Shifter. Technical production is by Matt Gerberkorn at Sonic Playground. And the show was recorded and produced by me, Neil Piggott. Join me in a fortnight-ish when I'll be talking with the comedian, podcaster, writer and delightfully dry, Judith Lucy. Now, at the end of the first half of the episode, Paul mentioned a particular song by a woman who described herself in her autobiography as a white Hungarian Jew from Melbourne, sounding like a 65-year-old black man from Alabama. That woman is Renee Geyer. I'll leave you now with Foggy Highway. See you soon. <laughs>